we have all these all these levels of interpretation we bring to Darwinian theory, and it's become an evil word to many, and something we reject, and 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 in doing so, we reject science, we reject the sciences, we reject people within our own community, and we've done it based on perhaps our own pain and experience that's distinct from actually actual the actual history and use of Darwin. Welcome to Resonance, a podcast of the Science and Religion Club of Southern Nazarene University. It is our hope that with this podcast, you will begin to discover the resonant relationship between science, faith, and life. We are joined by Stan Rosenberg, director and founder of Scholarship of Christianity in Oxford. He is a member of Wycliffe Hall and faculty in the Theology and Religion Department at the University of Oxford. His research focuses on the works of Augustine, Christian cosmology, and its relationship to science. Our conversation will be an attempt at unpacking God's goodness amidst a broken world. This is Brent Montgomery at Southern Nazarene University. I'm professor of logic and philosophy here, and with me today is Stan Rosenberg. He is director and founder of SCIO, Founder Scholarship in Christianity in Oxford. He's an academic member of Wycliffe Hall and a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford, teaching early Christian history and doctrine. His research and teaching interests focused on Augustine's work, early Christian cosmology, and its relationship to Greco-Roman science, culture and philosophy, and the interplay between intellectual and popular thought in this period. He is also involved in discussions on the relationship between science and religion, which is why we're mostly with him today. Stan, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you. All right. Um, you, of course, we'll have later some formal lectures and things like that. But really, I'd like to hear a bit about your biography. What is your background and what moved you into your area of specialty? Just, just talk a bit about that, if you would, please. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, north and a bit west of here in Colorado and uh, grew up around the university. My father was a medievalist at Colorado State University. So I grew up with a sense of history. Family tradition here. Family tradition. I inherited the family business and you could say I inherited more than a few of the family jewels, <laughs> i.e. my father's books. Okay, very nice. Um, Beats yeah, buying them, doesn't it? It does, especially some of those really expensive yeah. uh, encyclopedias and dictionaries. Very good. Um, so I, I, uh, my background, I grew up within the Plymouth Brethren Church. Okay, Plymouth Brethren. And I went to a Plymouth Brethren uh, Bible school for a year after high school before going on to university. And that really... Um, shaped my uh, career in some ways. You could almost say that the brethren chased me to the fathers. <laughs> okay. Um, well. yeah, I want to use that. Um, <laughs> but I, I, while I was at the brethren school, I found that I was asking questions about the shape of theology in a way that it was inherited from tradition, the way that was shaped and the experience, the people who brought it, and had enough sense of the development of thought for growing up with the father who was a historian to have a sense that things... There, things get shaped over time, and and so we can't talk about the doctrine of Trinity by just looking at the New Testament, and you can't go from the New Testament to the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed in the fourth century without understanding that there's development over time and things change, and okay. that is what uh, led me to wanting to study the early church. So I went back after my year of Bible school to study Roman history uh, and medieval history at Colorado State, and I also minored in philosophy. Oh, very good. Um, I would not say that logic was one of my strengths there. <laughs> well, that's okay. I hope I'm rather logical, <laughs> but doing the logic trees was not my strength. No, no, that's um, fine. But I was a log uh, philosophy <clears throat> minor and a religious studies minor uh, there, working to try and understand early church, and I ended up going on to do my doctorate, and uh, I, I became a specialist in Augustine uh, through... Um, Two things. I had worked at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington uh, and uh, went there for a summer, actually, to uh, study and work with the Institute. And while there, went up to use the library at a university that has great strengths in patristics, Catholic University. Through that, uh, ended up transferring and uh, uh, was able to study. Uh, my goal is to study a great mind under great minds. Okay. And Very so I uh, was able to study Augustine under two of the great Augustine scholars and uh, really helped shape my uh, 
my experience and understanding and thought. I'm really grateful for that time there. Well, you know, I was going to ask, how is it the guy would have such love for ancient cl- classical history, but it runs in the family, and so you were able to set up shop pretty quickly, having all the infrastructure in place, which must be really nice. Uh, but that even helps. so, I mean, patristics is just acres and acres of reading. I mean, mm. there's so much there. Um, you must really enjoy delving into the historical documents themselves to follow this trend. I do. I mean, and my... My work uh, as a historian is to contextualize, which means I have to read broadly and understand the context. We often say, we'll, we'll hear people co- quote that uh, ideas have consequences, but I think even more fundamentally and more identifiably, ideas have a context. Mm-hmm. And so my job as a historian is to try and help identify the context. So that means I need to wa- read broadly, understand different trends. I started out doing um, intellectual history as this classically defined uh-huh. ways of right. tracking history of ideas but found that it was insufficient in its own right for what I wanted to do. And so I ended up moving more into social history as well and have worked at integrating those two, Mm -hmm. uh, understanding the culture and society in which these events and people and ideas uh, develop, are are born, develop, and alter over time. Okay, very good. Um, Now, you mentioned that you have background in late antique history and culture, late antique philosophy. What's late about late here? Where do you sort of draw the line? You know, in traditional undergraduate studies, you sort of split things at 1500 forward and backward. Where does late split for you in your mind? Well, I have to say, first off, modern history at Oxford begins with Constantine the Great. I see. So, right. um, it's a little bit different view. There. It's a little bit different view of what's modern. That's what happens when you go to an ancient university. <laughs> but for late antiquity refers to a period of roughly 150 to 750 AD. And so I study particularly the Latin West uh, and uh, the Latin uh, late Roman history and the uh, and the Latin tradition within Christianity. Well, say what you will about the intellectual history; it was a fascinating time. In oh, indeed, it was. I mean, it's uh, I've added so the other approaches to history really to help me understand the intellectual history better. So it's it's not been so much a giving up of of the history of ideas, mm-hmm. but a trying to, uh, of adding new dimensions out of which I interpret the history of ideas. Well, just, just as a methodological issue, how would you separate in your own mind the doing of intellectual history versus the doing of, say, social history, which you kind of went, went to a little bit later to address the issue? So I do, much of my work focuses on comparing, in Augustine, comparing his thought as written out for his peers in his commentaries with his sermons. So for Augustine, Augustine gave somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 sermons in his lifetime. I believe it. And we have almost 1,000. About 950 of those sermons are extant. That means about 950 are still available in some sense. Yeah. I remember when I was in uh, college in the 80s, every once in a while they'll dig something new of his up out of the library That's here right. and there. And I remember being in college, I was reading his kind of a New York Times paraphrase of his uh, confessions. And so I just happened to be kind of sensitive to that. And somewhere in the paper, it said, yeah, they found another letter of Augustine in the library. That's right. There was a whole series of letters that were found in the early 380s by a scholar named Zivak. And then in the later 380s, early 390s, um, I think it was in Leipzig, uh, a, a, a Dolbeau found a whole series of sermons that hadn't been found. And they're just fascinating. Um, what the sermons do is it opens us up to a broader world, and it, you have to situate them in the world. And it, it, it these theologians, we think of them as theologians, but they're actually preachers, and and they were well trained. They were uh, they were engaged with their community, and so I work at studying his ideas as they show up in his sermons and compare those to how they show up in his commentaries. And that by with the sermons, I get something more of the social context in which right. they were given, but also gives me a broader context to interpret. So we've we've pegged Augustine with different ideas over time, different ways of thinking, which actually don't represent the fullness of Augustine. Um, you and I have each changed over time, and I'd be really upset if somebody said Rosenberg, when he was twenty years old, thought X. I'm a little bit older than twenty now, <laughs> just barely. Um, just barely. But if somebody said when I was twenty, I thought I thought X. Whatever X happens to be, it could have been the moon is blue. Uh, to be silly about it. Um, it, and suggested that's what I always think that 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 represents the fullness of my thought is really a petty way to treat somebody. Mm-hmm. But that's often what we do. We we peg people, we focus them, and we define their whole work by that. I study it. One of the reasons why I study Augustine is he changes his mind a lot. It's really interesting. I'd much rather learn from somebody who changes their mind because I can track with them. I can develop, I can understand, if, if I understand 
his or her biography, I can begin to understand why they changed their mind, how they changed their mind, and the significance of it. Mm -hmm. And so by bringing that social history to bear with intellectual history, it allows me to to understand something about Augustine's own development, but also understand that some of the ways we've, we have treated him and thought of him are actually defined by our own prejudices and concerns and preoccupations rather than his. Here's one to think about, too. When, when we hear about someone giving sermons, you know, we can read their sermons, but in his day, very, very few people could read. Right. And so his sermons are going to carry a whole different social context than maybe we would think of today. Well, that's right. And that's true, not just for Augustine, but the other great preachers of the day. This was largely an oral, oral context. And one of the things to understand in oral orals is ideas, ways of conveying ideas vary. And so they would often use symbols. You see this with the Bible as well. They use symbols that are meaningful, but they're not, they're not as we work today with these sort of exact notions of numbers, for example. Like in the ancient world, if you wanted to say a lot of people showed up, there was an interesting symbol that they used to say a lot which was 40. <laughs> 40. 40 it is. Whether 40 it's 80 is, or 38, it, it, it's 40. It, it, huh? it didn't mean 40 exactly. As if, if somebody sat down and counted every single head or every single day and came up with 40, it was a way of describing lots. Well, in an oral world, that makes sense. You understand how that, work, how that culture works, mm-hmm. and you think that through. And, that, and the theology we have developed within uh, this oral context, and so it means understanding is theological development in a society where they engage with things a bit differently. Uh, historian or theologian, which are you? I know what you're going to say. Yes. What is, yeah, both. Uh, now, if you were to lay a percentage of weight, are you a little bit more theologian, a little bit more historian? I've already formed an opinion, but what would you say? Yes. <laughs> Come on now. Give, give, it's not 50-50. Which, which ones have you spent at least quantitatively the most time in the literature? That's, that's a good telling way. I think the best way to do theology, with, with reference to my great friends and colleagues who are biblical theologians or systematic theologians, is historical because hist- theology is an appropriation of ideas in a time and place. Okay. And so as we do theology... We are, we, are, we are making sense of these ideas. We're taking these biblical texts, our data, or try, uh, and the tradition before, and the ways of interpreting the hermeneutics right now are our, our data, but we're trying to make sense of it. So I think all theology must start with and be fundamentally shaped by, by historical theology. Right. And then beyond that, you do your systematics or your, uh, or your biblical approach. But that gives the, the core data, and that's what I do. And so that's why I refuse to be pegged. <laughs> so, so when you say I do historical theology, you mean it then? I, I mean it. I think it's... We're I'm looking for that balance. You see that methodologically as important to doing theology properly. Now, if you were to ask me, are there times when I do history that is not uh, a history of theology? Right. That is the case. I'll do thing, I'll do focus on subjects that are just historical. But I don't know that I would say I would do subjects that are just theological. There is no just theology. There's, the, there's theology that's shaped by something I engage mm-hmm. with. And so all the theology I do is shaped by historical imagination and, and an attempt at historical sensitivity. Okay, so you would be very unfriendly to the idea of, almost an enlightenment idea, of theology as the abstracta of God's truth. That's, uh, that is, because, um, because God for amazing reasons that I don't fully get, has chosen to reveal himself in time and place through people. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take time, place, and people seriously to understand the ideas. And so um, I think there are timeless truths, but we understand those as time-bound people mediated through time-bound artifacts. Mm -hmm. And so I... I work towards that, and I try and I, I don't disbelieve in systematics, but I okay. think the systematics needs the tools, and my job is to provide those tools. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's look specifically then uh, at the the time and context of Augustine. I mean, he was a giant in his field, yeah. uh, super interesting. Maybe the first person to do autobiography as we would understand it today. Uh, even barbaric be as undergraduate, it was almost racy reading when you're reading some of the stuff he writes too. Sure. So it's not it's not so abstract that you, you feel like you're doing work. You feel like you're really reading the thoughts of someone who's writing it down at the end of the day. Well, what 
Why do you think he was even still so enthralling to people who read Augustine? What makes him enthralling, even when he's so far separated from us in yeah. space, time, and culture? What captured my imagination with Augustine is there's this deep, authentic engagement with very tough issues. And so when he wrestles with the problem of knowing God or of knowing himself in the confessions, there's this this winsome authenticity. Uh, how, where were you when I looked for you? I couldn't find myself, let alone find you, he writes in the confessions. Or look at me and have mercy upon me, for you see that I become a question into myself. I don't know myself. And there's this, he had this profound intuition. Uh, and he's somebody who, who said, he even said this, that he learns as he writes and he writes as he learns. And so his writing becomes his sketchbook, if you will. It's a bit like, as a scholar, I'm interested in seeing how things are built in a sense. Actually, I like things. I, I like mechanics. I like seeing how things okay. are built anyway. So I, lo- I really like taking my bicycle apart. I'm an avid cyclist. <laughs> okay. I like taking my bike apart and, and re-greasing the hub just for the sake of doing it, not just because it's I hear a squeak. It sounds like an engineering mindset. Yeah. And, well, there's a, a kind of that I like, and I want to understand how how are his ideas built. So one of the things that's interesting to me when I look at art is to go look at the sketches of an artist before the final product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can go in, at Oxford, you can come to study at Oxford and go into its great museum, the Ashmolean, and they have pen drawings of Rembrandt there, and you can go in and see the pen drawings that were the predecessor to the great paintings. Yes. Um, Almost a blueprint of doing art. So when you read Augustine, you're getting all that together. I did my my doctoral work on his great commentary on Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 to 3, called the literal commentary on Genesis. It's not literal as we would use it. We can get into that later if you'd like. Um, but I got into that because it was my mentor, uh, Robert Marcus described it as his intellectual workshop. Mm-hmm. And I thought, workshop, that's where I like hanging out. Uh-huh. That's where I want to be. If this, is, if this is Augustine's intellectual workshop, that's where I need to hang my hat. And uh, so there is this sense of authenticity, of working things out. Um, he makes changes. He, he, he changes his mind on things quite notably in certain areas. And I find there is an intellectual honesty there. I think Augustine made mistakes took some issues to a greater extreme than I wish he would, certain issues to a greater extreme than I would he would have, uh, got, found himself caught in some intractable debates. So he's not a perfect uh, theologian. There are none for us to work with, <laughs> uh, uh, human theologians. But uh, there is this deep sensitivity to, the, to contending hard with reality. When you mentioned that you're able to see that he changes his mind on some issues, it looks to me then that establishing the timeline of when sermons were given or when things were written will be very important to support your case of a change of mind as opposed to, oh, it's just inconsistent. Right. That solves a lot of the inconsistency problems that people sometimes uh, levy against Augustine if he really did change his mind. But in order to make that stick, you'd have to say, we've got a real clear timeline of how he right. was understood when he wrote Watt. And, and fortunately, he complained against everyone. And so there's plenty of kind of cross-referencing of letters you can do. Yeah. How do you deal with the issues of timelining Augustine's well, work? Well, all of his works we can date. Uh, uh, there are there are a couple of debates around one or two works, but with the exception of one or two debates out of 90-plus books, we know almost we, we can date in even sections. Now, some of his books t- took quite a long time, like The City of God took 13 years, from 413 to 426. Mm-hmm. But we can relatively, from internal evidence and from some conceptual evidence, fairly soundly date different sections of it. That's and other works took you know six months or less. Yeah. Some took longer. But we can give a pretty sound dating for almost all of his works, again, all but one or two. And um, uh, his letters tend to be quite dateable because they usually have internal evidence. The sermons are hard to date. That's, that's a little bit more of a fool's errand in most mm-hmm. cases because they rarely um, have the internal evidence. You'll find edited volumes that will try and date a sermon, and I almost always disbelieve the dates that people put down. I see. So is it because there's just no quantitative way to assess the kind of thing, and so much of it is you see what you want to see? Or yeah, and it, there's a particular, it's easy to create a circular argument. So you could say, Augustine only starts thinking about certain issues in 413. 
here's a sermon that shows that issue. (laughs) So therefore, it must be after 413. Well, that's a pretty frail argument. And uh, so that's the problem with sermons. Um, Unless there's some sermons that are dateable where there's, you know, he'll reference an emperor or the year of an emperor or some event that we've got dates for. (laughs) So where we get those, we can date it. But Oh, 90% of the sermons are not dateable, and any any argument made up based on dating them should be treated with suspicion. Very interesting. Now, speaking of suspicion, as I understand it, there's a standard way of viewing Augustine on evil and, and some of these standard doctrines, and you've had a complaint against that. Yes. Uh, could you sort of steel man the standard way, set it up in ways where this is what is pretty much accepted, and where's your argument with that? So give us kind of a, a two-punch here. What's okay. the standard way, and what Stan's way that he sort of <laughs> argues against that? Well, so the standard and is mostly correct. The standard argument is almost completely correct, except it takes it too far. Okay. So the problem is one of extent. Uh, Augustine uh, develops an important, a, a really a critical uh, approach to the problem of evil, which has largely been lost in the modern world. Maybe you can help me as a philosopher understand why, because I don't quite get it. But there are multiple different ways of handling the problem of evil. Um, and people will talk about free will defense, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's for example. Somewhere between 7 and 12, there's sort of standard ways okay. to mess with it. So one of the critical ways historically, but has been largely dropped, as far as I can tell since the Enlightenment, is privation theory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, privation theory says that all things are created and create good. And, and this is, it is worked out by Augustine in the context of working through the doctrine of creation out of nothing. So creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, was a way of understanding the world that developed in the second century BC, um, became uh, deeply appropriated by uh, Middle Judaism, particularly Philo, and then picked up in the second century AD by Christians like Justin and Clement Alexandrian origin, and uh, became really critical to Christian doctrine. And it and it and it, it offers some obvious ways to think about the world because you have if you have a world that is made by God that's separate that's contingent, created by God but distinct and and so the Kratzex Nilo solves problems that the Greek tradition often seen through Plato but also Aristotle had of having a continuous creation okay which offers multiple problems to <laughs> wrestle with. Certainly to our mindset. To our mindset. And within the Christian tradition, certainly offers some real difficulties. Not necessarily impossible, but some substantial difficulties. And so Augustine is working through creation out of nothing. And what he comes to the conclusion of is God makes everything. To be made is a good thing. And so he's got an essential uh, underlying assumption that existence by definition is good. So existence is given by God. Existence is good. Pretty standard Christian position all the way back even through Judaism. That's right. No no problem with that pedigree. And he is rejecting his own background that he was a part of for the time, the Gnostic background that he had through the Manichaeans that would have argued that the cosmos as we know it, the world as we see it today is that which was created by a bad God as part of this eternal combat, Mm -hmm. combat with the good gods. And he rejects that. So he wants to say that this world is good. So that means every bit of the, it's not just that this world is good, but every bit of this world has, a, has at its ontological level, if you will, a, a deep kind of goodness. And that goodness can't be completely disrupted, completely mm-hmm. destroyed, because privation theory it talks about evil as a qualitative thing. Uh, not as, if you will, an ontological thing. It's not something that exists. Because the problem is, if you say that evil is a thing, I think if, if you and I walked down on the street and went into local churches and asked, is, is evil something? Is there, are there some things out there that are evil? The, the 99% of the population probably say, well, yes, of course. <laughs> but we have a problem as soon as we admit that. Because where do all some things come from? Yeah, that which is has been given being by God. God. And so inasmuch as it is sustained, there must be some level of goodness within it. Yeah. Uh, it kind of naturally falls out. Otherwise, we make God the cause of evil. Yes. Uh, and so he rejects that notion. And he, he takes what was in a much more primal state, a Neoplatonic notion of privation, and changes it and gives it. A, you could say he Christianizes it, but much more deeply he transforms it. It's, it's a deep kind of Christian transformation to make sense of it within a Christian tradition and Christian theology that God creates things. Things are become uh, afflicted by moral choice, and they uh, and through those moral choices, 
they occur, there's a kind of destruction that undermines it. But it's not, they don't become completely evil because what's complete evil in this thinking? But nothingness. If something is utterly evil, yes. So there's only cease to be. They cease to be. So there's absolute good, but not absolute evil. Only good is absolute, and only God is absolute. He, it's inconceivable to think that God would make something that's His equal. Mm -hmm. So it's always anything God makes is going to be less than absolute. So it's a, if you will, relative good of God, um, and yet fully good, but it's still a relative degree of being, and it's a contingent form of being. Now, it's a bit like uh, my bicycle. I said earlier I like cycling. I have an old bike that I use for uh, riding, uh, for commuting. I don't take my good bike to the office, usually, uh, or my road bike. Um, uh, and my old bike has a fairly rusty chain, which I don't worry about too much because there's a lot of bike theft in Oxford. So, oh, I, don't I, want, so I don't want my bike to look too nice. <laughs> That's right. Um, let and I, pass it on by. Let pass it on by. And every time I ride the bike, I actually hate it because I like good things that work well and they're good. But as I'm riding it and it's making the squeaking sound, I'm nonetheless thinking, but at least nobody will steal it. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. it's good. But here's the thing. It's got a squeaky chain because it's got a rusty chain. Augustine understands evil as like corrosion, like rust. Mm -hmm. It undermines the integrity, but there's still something, there's a utility there. It doesn't so destroy that it's, that it's useless. And that's his way of understanding. That, that is essential to understanding his political theology in the city of God and his understanding of hermeneutics and language in on Christian instruction. Um, his whole theological framework is shaped by this. In fact, there's not a part of his theology that is not shaped by his approach to evil as privation. So you think that's been sort of a ubiquitous concept through his whole historical. It is. Work. It's, it, once he comes upon this, in the, it's a it's a it's a view that he develops in the mid 390s. So his earliest okay. works don't have this so much. Um, he's he's touching on, but he hasn't really. It's not a mature view of it. By by the time of writing the Confessions, it becomes a mature view, which is late 390s, early 400s. Um, it, it's starting to take fuller form. Now, here's the thing: when he, what, what has been misunderstood and misappropriated on that, um, is thinking it applies to all things. And so, there in the d discussions around the nature of the cosmos and the problem of evil, people have treated the uh, Augustine's teaching of evil to say that all things. Were, if you will, static and good until the fall. Mm -hmm. Now we have a, here's a classic way of, of describing Augustine's understanding of the fall that that some take um, that in, in in rejecting God in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve first become alienated, dislocated from God, and in becoming dislocated from God, they become dislocated within to themselves. So Augustine says, you know, where was I? Where am I? I can't even find myself. I'm a question to myself. And if I can't get along with God, and I can't get along with myself, how on earth am I going to get along with you? And so we have social dislocation. So uphill. The third, four, fourth, sorry, that was the first three. The fourth form of dislocation is where this issue of privation has been misapplied sometimes, in my estimation, uh, analysis of Augustine. It is sometimes said, and you'll find this within classic works like uh, uh, Evil and the Love of God by John Hick, and you find it within... Uh, some reform thinkers, like Al Walter's little book on creation, that the fourth form of a, a, a alienation is that the cosmos becomes alienated from God. Right. That the cosmos right. itself gets dislocated. Now, that becomes a real fundamental problem in the science and religion debate. Yes, because if does. you say that there could only be tornadoes, there could only be hurricanes, there can only be um, cosmic destructive events after the fall you have no way to account for any kind of uh, development of the cosmos. And it has clear empirical falsification conditions, too. It does, and indeed. So there, that puts you in a kind of a lurch when you're trying to make sense of this as a Christian. And so, about four years ago, I entered into a study of this, and it was out of my own existential crisis, because I'm somebody, I, I wouldn't say I'm a thoroughgoing Augustinian. There are parts of Augustine I shake my head at and think, uh, no, thank you, um, or I can't take it this far. But I'm deeply formed by Augustine. I've learned a great deal from him. I'm grateful for him. And he shapes many aspects of my theology. Um, and so I would describe myself as working broadly within an Augustinian theological scope. But at the same time, I'm convinced by the science of, of biological and physical evolution. I'm on the board of uh, the Advisory Council of Biologos. 
I work with evolutionary creation. I believe there is intelligence behind the universe without, uh, without going into issues of intelligent design. Of course. So I found myself thinking, wait a minute. I describe myself as Augustine, but I also accept this notion of evolution. These contradict each other. And, and either one, I have to give up one or the other. And so I began studying Augustine in depth on this. And what I found was we've misapplied Augustine because when he talks about privation, he is applying that to moral beings and what happens when we make our, what we do with our free choice. So privation of the good is the undermining of the souls, creatures that have souls, i.e. angels and humans mm -hmm. that can make choices. And uh, he is not applying it. He does it, in fact, quite distinctly. There's, there are very clear texts in which he doesn't apply that to the cosmos. Where he excludes that. He excludes it. And he talks then distinctly about decay. And like Athanasius before him, he argues that if we're contingent, we're made out of and made out of nothing. Whatever is made necessarily must be able to be unmade. Um, speaking to the philosopher here, you will understand this. Um, our essential existence is nothingness. <laughs> and so we are contingent beings that we are. I mean, contingent beings that we are. Mm. And so let me say this more broadly. So when we talk about accident and essentialness, accident means something didn't have to be. So in a sense, we're accidental beings. Not that God didn't intend it. But there was no necessity. God wasn't under compulsion to create. God chose to create. And so our essential existence is, if you will, an, philosophically speaking, an accident. Mm. And so anything that is contingent has built within it, by necessity, the potential for decay. And so we don't have to look outside as we come into the autumn and see trees browning and say, okay, Browning of grass and trees can only happen after the fall. <laughs> Sadly, Adam caused fall. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so the, uh, the world as we know it includes growth and decay by definition, and it's part of being a created being. And so Augustine treats decay as something separate. And, and in his text admits, says that, there, that the world goes through a process of growth and decay separate from the fall. He's not talking about as a result of the fall. He's talking about the very nature of the cosmos. How do you think the mistake got made then on the kind of the standard view of, of applying that too widely? Where, where did it go sideways where people kind of accepted that? I think one of the problems we have, and maybe you can help me with this here, I think one of the problems that becomes definitional, um, at earliest I can find it is lightness, but we invented a term, lightness as far as I know, invented a term, natural evil. Hmm. And by calling cataclysms like earthquakes and natural evil, by classifying as evil, we set ourselves up for thinking. And then we begin to read theology back into the terminology that we've innovated. So finding it in history since we found it immediately. And this category of metaphysical evil, too, gets thrown around at the same yeah. time. And he's probably differentiating those two, and that's where it comes sort of in relief, and then yeah, people want to use it. Now, maybe it's earlier than Leibniz. You might have a better sense. I haven't seen it before that. Yeah. Um, um, I'd be interested if you, if you know it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the problem is it's well this he makes this phrase and that's what we mean by natural evil but the actual phrase natural evil that i can't think of anything earlier than that to come yeah. up of course he would again because he's talking about these different kinds of evil it might just have come into relief because he's product differentiating from all the other concepts and, and maybe it's voltaire's adaptation of him where voltaire is making these moral complaints mm -hmm. Then maybe it's particularly with Voltaire. But, yeah. Well, um, even if you find the era where natural evil occurs, does it occur before the era? So it's, yeah. it's an interesting question to ask. But I think it's we, we've conceptualized something that has made it difficult. And then it makes a certain amount, if you aren't treating them in, with nuance and reading, you have, one of the problems is there's so much of Augustine's works. You have to read them yeah. a lot and extensively. Yeah, a lot of it. And you have to be careful with Augustine. Because he's a rhetorician, he'll speak broadly, and he changes his way because of the, this is back to the issue of oral culture. He has different ways of saying the same thing. Or he will, in some ways, potentially contradict himself because he, this is a society where they work from memory. Um, he will recite something, he'll say it may be slightly different at a different time. Is it true? I seem to recall that he would have like five or six people taking dictation. He That's right. Well, that particularly on his sermons. That, okay. On his sermons, he'd have a bank of of uh, notaries who would who had taken he intended to edit those that never happened but he intended to edit those well it, it is at least nice that he recognized his value to history in the church that I don't think it was overstated that everything he said should have been recorded because as you read what this guy is doing it's like 
man, if he'd written twice as much, we still would have gained from it. Well, and even in his own time, like he complains uh, when he's writing his book on the Trinity that some of the monks stole an unfinished section of it and started distributing before he was ready to have it distributed. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. Uh, yeah, that happens too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even in philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Saul Kripke was lecturing on modality and logic, and people were making mimeographs of mimeographs and passing around before he even had a chance to prove his own things that were said in the lecture. That's so, hilarious. But, you know... People know quality when they see it, and yep. they want access to it immediately. So the internet makes that really easy now. But in the past, you know, written documents, books chained to walls. I mean, the, this very valuable piece of information if you get that out. Okay, now I'm going to pick up something you said. Parts of Augustine you just don't like. All right, throw it on the table. What are some of the things about Augustine you don't like? Well, I, here's one I have a hard time with. The argument for... Predestinate. Given his understanding of evil as privation, mm -hmm. his argument for predestination makes a certain amount of logical sense. Okay. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> well, certainly in my tradition, I wouldn't like that. Yeah, so. <laughs> and, I, and I want to push it as far as he would. Now, Augustine, you know, when it got... One of the things with Augustine is, first, there is language of predestination that's used generically early in his career. So early in his career, before... The whole debate of original sin and predestination really took off. He used the same, some of that same terminology, but didn't mean it in any deep technical sense. They were just synonyms for salvation, really, when okay. they would talk about uh, God predestining someone. That just meant, well, God was going to... Uh, Had a plan in place. place and there's yeah. going to be salvation. But there wasn't this very refined, concrete thinking about mm -hmm. it. By um, when the debate with Pelagius, this English monk, begins in about 413. Oh, that's the most awesome debate ever between him yeah. writing those letters and Pelagius. And oh. Was it Silesius? His disciple was like egging him on to do Oh, Julius. So yeah, yeah. him. And, that's, and with the Julius, he had probably for the first time an intellectual peer who could keep up with him. Yeah, and that. they were the will. There was not a lot of... Um, well, how, let's just put it for what it was. There was a lot of ill will between them. That's right. Um, and not a lot of generous speaking. <laughs> um, it was an ugly debate. And they pushed each other to the logical extent of their thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is, is theology is not... I'm not convinced that theology is purely a dialectical exercise where the most logical possible structure expresses well, I think expresses that's probably the lesson we learned from the Enlightenment, when it sort of got subsumed into that and people recognized this, this isn't really theology as applied to the church through a people with a tradition. It would just, it'd be nice if that were the case for those who love right. analytical mathematical thinking, but sadly not. It just didn't work out that that's way. Right. But uh, that's what that debate really became in a sense. And so mm -hmm. the extreme forms of it, as it... Uh, as a push down now and and Augustine meant um, you know it's gotten appropriated differently even so you'll hear people that will argue for predestination based on the sovereignty of God yes, yes. as if as if God is only sovereign if he is making every single decision yeah. and that then creates all sorts of problems for figuring out free will and other moral issues ability I mean it all moral seems to slip away at that point uh, but it's I think it's important to know that for Augustine it wasn't about the sovereignty of God it was about the pro this essential problem of privation undermining the integrity of a person. So a deprived soul, this corrupted soul, uh, going back to the privation discussion, lacks the essential integrity. And so what he saw was that what, what Augustine concluded is human nature was profoundly altered by a fall. And that's why we come, go from a state of being able to being positively able to sin, getting to the point where we can't do anything but have a sinful nature. Now, sinful nature didn't mean we couldn't do good things, but those good th those particular good things were not um, sufficient to being a whole good creature. And uh, it makes sense from his privation theory, and, that, and so I, I frankly I get a bit stuck with it, because I think privation theory, I, I've not been convinced of a better approach to the problem of evil than that, even though Many modern theologians have no idea what privation theory is or right. don't use it. I think it's actually, it, it it explains many other parts of Augustine that many people like to use. So his, his semiotics, his approach to hermeneutics, his approach to the state. Uh, you couldn't have Niebuhr without Augustine. Right. And you wouldn't have this aspect of Niebuhr or Augustine without privation theory. Because otherwise, you know, he describes in uh, Book 19 of the City of God, he talks about the peace that the state has, the peace, the state has a peace that is a, 
if you will, a shadow of the of the originate piece that God gives. Yeah, I've called the states. I've heard the states piece called the cessation of hostilities, cessation. as opposed to some ultimate telos. Yeah, good, which that's is, right. It doesn't. It lacks the ultimate telos, but it, it's but it's only possible as a as a as a tertiary reflection of the real thing. And he says, but here's the thing, key thing for Augustine. Because it's that, it's a pro, it, it is a reduced version. We can enter into it, support it, and engage with it to the extent that it helps us accomplish the ultimate goals, mm-hmm. the ultimate peace. As long as we don't forget, it's not the real thing. And he says the same thing about justice. People forget that. For Augustine, he talks about the difference between justice and true justice, justitia and vera justitia. And so for him, true justice is the justice God gives. But there is a frail, feeble form of justice that is sometimes available in this world. A poor reflection. A poor reflection. And to the extent that it offers it, to that extent we can support it. Um, it's out of that that you know, the Christian uh, political tradition developed that w- led through uh, Aquinas to, uh, to uh, some reformers and then on into Niebuhr. Um, all right, let's, um, we're about two-thirds of the way through here. Let, okay. Let's go back to something you said just a few moments ago. We'll start with it, work our way out. Human nature, huh. nature of human beings. And certainly Augustine would say that there's something amiss, something wrong with human nature as we observe it. Did he see that as a historical event of which we're still still dealing with the fallout? Did he see that as something that arises within every person automatically by nature of being human? How did he view this corruption or this malfunctioning human nature that we encounter in the concrete experience of one another? Well, both ends. So uh, for Augustine, there was a fall, um, and this fall corrupted in choosing against God it corrupted their nature. It, it altered their relationship to God. And for him, it's a kind of deep irony. So for Augustine, it takes the sustaining grace of God to work within us, to, to keep us from that natural decay we were talking about earlier that's part of the cosmos. And so humans, in choosing against God, chose their own, the, the seeds of their own destruction, um, self-destruction. And... And so our nature in the fall gets altered um, by our own free choice. And what we do is hand that on. Now, it's important to know that for Augustine, he's not using freedom in the way a modern American would understand freedom. It's not libertarianism. It's teleologically defined. So freedom is the ability to fulfill one's function. So the free person is a person who's able to do what they were designed to do. Right. So it's not something you choose. It's more about something you are or are not, I yeah, take it. That's right. And so uh, so by no longer being a fully functional Imago Dei, he doesn't think that the Imago Dei is lost. He thinks it's corrupted. Uh, by no longer being a fully functioning Imago Dei, we can't fulfill our telos. And Augustine, now it's hard. The best definition of this has a modern word, but you can quickly misunderstand stand if you push the word too far. You can quickly misunderstand it if you push the word too far, which is a kind of genetic problem. Uh, so think about genetic here as an analogy, not right. as a, um, not as in not cell biology. That we picked up somewhere yeah. in some pretty garden. Right. We're not talking cell biology. Yes. But we are talking about the handing on of one form to another. And so original sin takes root within the human. And this was the debate he had with Pelagius, is, is, the, is a sin... Is sinful activity something that each person picks up on their own right, or is it something that's endemic? And for Augustine, it becomes endemic in our nature, something handed out. Now, the reformers would change that and talk about Adam, uh, that we're in Adam in some sort of federal headship mm-hmm. way. Right. Augustine is thinking we're actually in Adam in some sort of structural form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that Adam hands on a human nature, Adam and Eve. He's clear about both both parents hand on this nature. Now he really struggles with that. He has to think through this in his commentary on Genesis. You know, where where do new souls come from, and how do these? Uh, what's the origin of each new soul mm-hmm. when a child is born, and how is it this child uh, receives a a disrupted nature? But he's clear. He's a little uncertain about that bit of the process, mm-hmm. and he plays with different ideas. He doesn't really settle on one main approach. But what is clear is the outcome that we receive a disrupted human nature. And that nature is what needs to be healed. 
And that healing requires this infusion of grace and righteousness within. Now, for Augustine, unlike, say, the tradition of the Reformers and many Protestant traditions since then, grace comes in as an intrinsic, something that's intrinsic, and it remaps the human soul, if you will. It's how we get the language of formation in spirituality. Right. That, and Augustine thinks much more like the East of deification or theosis, that salvation is is this reshaping of our being so that we enjoy the righteousness of God. But it's not as if, it, it's not as if this alien righteousness comes around and, and surrounds us but never enters into us, as it's sometimes described in some of the Protestant traditions. It's this righteousness is alien, is alien, if you will, at the point of salvation, but it then comes in and becomes a part of who we are. And, and there's this process of transformation. So you read the confessions and you have this sense of, it's almost like there's an initial surgery, like you think about someone with cancer, and I realize that can be a painful analogy for some, but if you think about someone with cancer, they've got to have that initial surgery to solve the problem, but then there's that continuing uh, recuperative care that goes on afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so uh, righteousness comes in and makes that initial change and solves that problem of original sin, if you will, that may that changes that sin nature, but there's still that ongoing health-giving care needed. Okay, so I see the outcome of how he sees that the intervention of God into human nature can uh, correct to some degree uh, the side of death, I take it. But the origin of it's still a bit hazy to me. So it looks like that there was a time, as in a time and space, where human beings did have the uncorrupted image of God, and then something happened as an event, and from forward we have this. Yeah, Augustine apparently thinks in terms of a, of a real Adam and Eve. Yes. I, I'm wrestling with that because... We read that through our lens of history. We think in very particular historical ways. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out if Augustine thinks in the same, uses the same yeah, historical yeah, lens, and I'm not sure. anachronistic to try to hold our standards on him. I can yeah. see he wouldn't have that. But still, we know certain things that, you know, 800 to 1,000 to a million years ago, we had hominid primates using fire. 3.2 right. million years ago, they were carrying around sticks. Somewhere about seven million years ago, they looked just like chimpanzees, but had locked knees. I mean, that's really right. the only difference. As we trace this back, where is this image of God? Is it bipedalism? Is it the knee? Is it the stick carrying? I mean, where do you want to levy that in terms of what is it so, and where what, does it enter so into the So the first one we have is we have to define what we mean by the Mago Dei or the image of God. And Go there for are it. five or six <laughs> different ways of doing that. And one thing to be clear on is... The Bible is really not very clear itself about no, what this it's means. Not, sadly. So you have a couple of references, only a couple of references to the Imago, image and similitude, image and likeness in the Old Testament, and it's very uh, obscure what it actually means, refers to. Although I think you know people like John Walton and other uh, other Old Testament ancient Near Eastern scholars that I read really put very much into this notion of. Uh, humans being the representative, just like you'd have a statue of a king representing the, the king's rule in an area, humans are representing something of the rule of God to this region. So that seems how image seems to be used uh, within the ancient Near East uh, tradition that uh, that Genesis was written and uh, exists. But um, And then we have it in the New Testament primarily referring to Jesus, who is supremely the image. Right. And in a couple of other places, in James it refers to Humans as image bearers, where he's talking about how we treat others. And in Hebrews, he talks about us as being the image of the Son, um, uh, the writer of Hebrews. But what does that mean? So there, some interpret the image of God as having a biological form. So if you think that, you're going to have all sorts of problems with evolution and human notions of human descent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how do you do it? Now, there are other approaches, like the functional and structural approaches to Mago Dei, which handle it a bit differently. That's what this recent book a group of us did on, takes on, is ask the question, how do different ways of approaching the image of God or original sin or problem of evil enable us to work with, uh, with the uh, work with biological and physical yeah, evolution. Yeah, that book is Finding Ourselves After Darwin, 
Conversations about the image of God, original sin, and the problem of evil, which it turns out we're having that conversation right now. So that's uh, right, <laughs> no doubt. So that's from uh, Baker Books. Just came out two months ago. So the question is somewhat unfair if it takes a whole scholarly cadre just to try to address it. Well, and, it and is because it. it's it's a hard set of questions. I think one, there are very few individuals who could who could have the whole conversation in an honest way. What we tried to do with that book is bring together scholars who had different views and didn't pit them against each other, but set up here are the various options. Some of those options work together, so it's not just really if you choose A, you have to reject B. Right, Sometimes right. it's A and B can work together to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And there are a few contradictions. So, I mean, there are some positions that contradict others in there, but not necessarily. You know, what do we do with the understanding science? Good genetic science now tells us, and this is the, through DNA studies, it's pretty firm evidence there's yeah. I can tell that that uh, homo sapiens modern homo sapiens go back about 200,000 years so we can reduce to an original yeah. community of 10,000 yeah. people by modern we mean they share the same body morphology that were they to walk Thank by you, you yes. on the street you wouldn't be suspicious they were anything else but fully human but you okay. go back more than about a couple hundred thousand years then they start having really funny looking bone structure facial structure exactly. you get variation you get like five or six that overlap what we think of as hominids that do not look similar yeah. not just what we think of sort of skin color differences literally morphological differences. You know, right. big toes that can wrap around branches, uh, hands that have ratios different than we would have. That's right. There's a lot of craziness going on. And this is what makes the question so interesting about a literal atom is can the Christian anthropology maintain itself in light of these stunning discoveries about the bush of human existence, the different kind of branches come off of it. So some, uh, frankly, I'm still working out what I think on this. Um, so I'm not offering a firm view here, but there are some that argue, and I think it's an interesting argument to think you know, we have within our theological tradition that where God reveals himself, there's greater responsibility. So uh, some have argued that uh, primal Adam and primal Eve were leaders in one of these communities at some date um, that were already homo sapiens and God comes in and reveals himself to this couple. Now, maybe there is a real Adam and Eve. This argues for, not maybe, this argues for a real Adam and Eve um, amidst a community. And that's actually not even contradicting the scripture because in Genesis 1 to 5, it talks about other communities there, other Genesis 3. So in that case, you'd be forced to take that historically as representative, not sort of metaphorically as descriptive of human nature. Anything. That's right. So, because where are you going to pick and choose to pull those out? It's going to be real tricky because that's right. others would say, well, no, it. You can't just pick and choose where you want the metaphors to be in Genesis. Um, that's probably, again, risky since the people who wrote that would have had generally no understanding that we do, that there's these kind of competing hominid. I think one of the things to also engage with here is there are two sets of provisionality. Science is a provisional form of knowledge, and it's changing. I mean, we 25 years ago, people were talking about 100,000 years ago being a mitochondrial Eve. Mm -hmm. Am I saying the word mitochondrial? Am I saying it right? Gently? Um, and that's now a view that's rejected by, by most working scientists, so far as I'm aware. Um, science has this provisionality. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean I, it becomes the bogeyman. It means it itself sees itself as developing a body of knowledge and constantly refining what it knows as the body grows and uh, alternative options come along. Theology is also somewhat like that. So theology is something done by people in a time and place. So we think of Catholic theology before the Reformation, right. offering a certain set of views. The, the Reformation comes along and changes it. Then you have Wesley coming along and critiquing some of the reformers. Yes. And so we in theology are willing to rethink and grow and ask new questions. And we're asking new questions to the science. So I think my role in this or my concern is to say, are, not do I answer what do I do with Adam and Eve, um, but to say, are there options that are plausible that I can say this this doesn't necessarily contradict, put me in jeopardy of contradicting uh, the authoritative canon I work with, or put me in a position of rejecting the best understanding of modern science? Can I find ways and not put my stake down there, but but maybe lay a, a pencil on the table and say, well, there it is, and uh, I can. This is a viable path. Ten years from now, I might say, what a fool I was to think so. <laughs> well, that's, that's the risk of induction, right? No matter how justified something seems, further evidence comes along, and then yeah. suddenly it doesn't seem so justified later on. Um, let me ask you this. 
You had mentioned the idea of, well, how is it the soul gets corruption? Augustine's talk of the soul. And then you kind of shifted the idea, well, the structure of whatever makes us what we are. So that way we're not really committed to a metaphysical soul. And many people were. Um, evolution doesn't just point backwards to what happened. It goes on even today. Every time you survive a flu, you, uh, you've sure. taken on new properties that allow you to sort of survive. What do you think the future is? Let's stipulate that human beings, uh, we take the embodiment of human beings seriously. Do you think that there's any corruption that could be modified by technology or science? We have, we have Prozac, Zoloft, we have drugs that seem to enhance people's existence. Uh, criminals can be given lithium and then they're no longer criminal. Do you think that evolution can point forward or do you think that technologically we might be able to fix corrupted nature by eliminating many of the sort of problems that bring about difficulties in society? Well, speculation, of course. Pure speculation. speculation. First off, both of us, uh, our audience will not know that both of us are wearing eyeglasses or <laughs> spectacles. So we begin by acknowledging and accepting, and some of our audience might be wearing hearing aids um, or have a uh, have a metal plate in the arm or a bolt. So we accept the possibility of alteration of some aspects of our human body um, to uh, to resolve. Um, I wear orthotics in my feet that keep me from uh, in my shoes that keep me from getting problems with my, more problems with my knees. So we do things to resolve uh, problems. <sighs> I'm not a specialist on uh, on um, on the biotechnical side. I've been involved with some bioethics, so I'm speaking here as an amateur. So I want to just say, now I'm moving into as an amateur, um, but with some commitment and engagement with the questions. Right. Theologically, um, it's still an issue. It's theologically, it's still an issue. Change in the human beings over time. We must look forward as well as yeah. backward. So, I think we we do make changes that enhance our present state. I'm wearing glasses so I can read better. Um, I think we can make enhances that can enhance our future state uh, like some drug therapies that protect us from retroviral drugs, getting vaccinations. We do make choices that, solve, that preemptively solve some future problems mm -hmm. that might come. And some of those have led to the near end of certain diseases, like smallpox, yeah, which was largely example. eradicated. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Now, the question becomes, what do we think we're making ourselves? Do we think that we can actually change our morality? Now, we know that we can do things that will inhibit some of our immorality. Mm -hmm. So certain drugs that we, we, we know that for many people, I don't know what percentage, but a large, a significant population who experience depression, it's chemically related. Mm -hmm. So if we can enhance life by some remedial um, uh, use of drugs that would uh, reduce that tendency towards depression, and that's altering the body system so that it is back to a neutral state, if you will, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm gr yes. grateful that we can do this that. This is the basis of medicine, right? Yeah. Sort of bring back functionality. Bring back lost. functionality. We, can cert we know that we can do things now to enhance not just fix but actually enhance mm -hmm. so we can make something better than it worked right. in this operative state wow um, it's interesting you know it, it, the idea is that if if we are fully embodied and we get rid of a cartesian soul that okay. whatever structure we have is both captures cognitively and morally who we are what is embodied can be manipulated by other bodies, and what even if even if we were to solve all suffering, it doesn't look like we thereby introduce meaningful lives. I mean, well, you can have all suffering, be completely healthy, and have a you know a, a non-threatening future, but you're you're trapped in the modernist view of what shall I do with my maximal freedom of movement? Right. What to what shall I point? And I I found that kind of an interesting. View. And, and I wonder if it's helpful to think here about the cardinal virtues and the cardinal vices. Mm -hmm. Because what we're talking about with human enhancement actually wouldn't change my potential to be jealous that I'm aware of. Maybe they'll figure out how to stop me being jealous. But <laughs> I jealousy can, vaccination. The jealousy vaccination. But until we come up with that, I think that uh, we're not altering something essential when uh, vaccinations can't make me more joyful. They can stop depression intervening into my joy. Mm -hmm. 
um, or part to some degree, but they can't actually cr positively create the virtues or stop the vices. And I think that's a helpful way to think. So in summary, you'd say there's no vaccination that's going to enhance or detract from the moral nature of human beings. Well, I'm not aware of any, but should there be one, I would be, I think we would have some very serious questions to ask. Um, I think we are aware that our chemistry can, in, can enhance or detract from certain things. So right, our basic right. biochemistry. So if I have a tendency towards selfishness or violence, certain chemical stimuli uh, certain stimuli within my brain can make me more prone towards something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, can modern medicine reduce the amount of violent activity of someone, and would it be wrong? Well, I'm not sure that's a problem, as long as we don't think that, therefore, we have, take, we have uh, eradicated the problem of uh, selfishness or greed or fear or the various things that can give rise to violence. Okay, let's just close on a lighter note here. We're right at one hour. Tell me about this producer of a play known as Mr. Darwin's Tree. Yeah. What is that about? Well, that's a play that we have done as part of the Skios Templeton-funded project called Bridging the Two Cultures of Science and the Humanities. It was actually shown here in uh, Oklahoma City at Oklahoma Christian University okay. two years ago. Uh, it, we will have it as an option to travel around to the participating colleges in uh, Southern Nazarene University is one of the colleges participating in the grant project. Okay. So you will have an option to host it here to consider it. And it's a very fun play. And it's an interesting play. What, what's wonderful about it, it's a one-man play uh, done by a professional actor who is just stupendous. He acts at 11 parts, and you experience all 11 parts. Okay. And the reason why I promote it and and produce it and send it across, I, it, the, the, to me, the funny thing is I didn't get a PhD thinking I was going to become a play producer. Yes, it did seem sort of an <laughs> odd project. Yeah, it's it was... not, it, wasn't in my, it wasn't in my sane mindset. Mm -hmm. But I've become a real believer and producer of this because I think it's a, a tremendous way to convey a set of ideas. Today, we deal with Darwin through a lot of different lenses. And every, almost every single one of them, whether a neo-Darwinist or an anti-Darwinist, is a caricature of Darwin. And what this play does is it gives you a real human. And it's an engagement of a real human dealing with the deep, troubling issues. He recognizes that these are problematic ideas. And yet he is willing to honestly engage them and pursue them. He has a wife who's an evangelical. Her, his wife, Emma, was a daughter of a Wedgwood. The Wedgwoods were the yes. great abolitionists of, of 19th century England. His mother was a Wedgwood as well. And frankly, it was, it was the treatment of slaves uh, in Brazil that he saw that really changed Darwin's view on many things. Mm -hmm. It was man's treatment of man that yes. was so abysmal that, that, that really put him on a path of rethinking many things. And so that tradition of born of a family that was serious about, um, uh, about uh, ending slavery and being married to a wife of that family, marrying a wife of that family later on, that really was transformative. And it gives you a sense, this play, of Darwin's real wrestling with faith. And is it possibly in the faith of his wife? And his, it wasn't always his faith. It was also understanding the impact of others. One of the challenges we have in the U.S., uh, there, there's a great tradition of study called geography of knowledge. It's related to sociology of knowledge. But it asks, how is a particular idea taken up and handled differently in different places? Huh? And so a scholar who works with us, David Livingston at Queen's University, Belfast, a lovely man, a great scholar, a deep Christian, has worked through the... Uh, the reaction to Darwin by different Presbyterian groups of the same Presbyterian denomination. He looks at Edinburgh and South Carolina uh -huh. and Princeton and Australia or is it New Zealand? So he samples these somewhat dichotomous cultures. Yeah, and Belfast and, and, and sees a different response. So people who nominally have the same creed, uh -huh. same theological tradition and vision, same biblical hermeneutic have reacted to Darwin differently. So wow. one of the questions is, why is the U.S.? Uh, or those influenced by the U.S. been so consistently uh, antagonistic to Darwin amongst many evangelicals. And I think myself, you have to look at two things. One of the important areas of work, and this is part of what I do as a historian, is looking at reception history. Mm -hmm. So when was Darwin published? When was Origin of Species published? Well, 1859. Right. What's going on here? Civil War. Yes, and also eugenics is in our history. Well, and too. that's the other piece of it. Yes. And, and so Darwin isn't published in the U.S., isn't 
found out in the U.S. until after the Civil War. And war changes the culture. This country, with its debates going on right now, would not have happened had there not been the two towers. We've been on a war footing since 9-11, and that changes our identity or changes culture. I wish, this is a side note, I wish our, our political leaders, when they talk about going to war somewhere, would not only just talk about the financial cost or the cost in lives, but would also acknowledge this is going to cost the culture. Yeah. Um, there are yeah, multiple costs. dominate things that otherwise could be spent elsewhere on other yeah. topics. And we think different ways. We, like the way we treat migrants now. Mm-hmm. It, 20 years ago, that would have been inconceivable, um, the, the treatment of migrants. But it's dominated by this war culture we've gone into. So what did he find when he sort of got the Darwin feedback from so, the various bodies? All right. So the Civil War dominated the U.S. culture for so many years, both during the war but after. And Darwin was uh, came in to the U.S. not directly through his own writings primarily, but through his cousin Galton, who created the eugenics movement. So very appropriate that you would have pointed to the eugenics. So, And many of these, the abolitionists, who were rightly reacting to anything that promoted slavery, saw the eugenics movement as something that was an antithetical to the Christian vision and, and deep commitment of abol- uh, abolition, which was a great and right commitment to have. Mm-hmm. But they misidentified Darwin because they identified Darwin with his cousin Galton, who introduced Darwin to us. So Darwin came to be known in the U.S. through what we today call social Darwinism. Uh, but that's not... Darwin, Darwin himself, in one of his letters to Lyle, plays with this idea momentarily and then rejects it. So he did uh-huh. think it through. And then he never brought it up again, so as far, as far as I'm aware. So he brought up this notion of the potential to think about eugenics and then just said no to it. Didn't touch it again, as much as I'm aware. And so what this play does is it attempts to break through. We have all these, all these levels of interpretation we bring to Darwinian theory. And it's become an evil word to many and something we reject and, and, and in doing so, we reject science, we reject the sciences, we reject people within our own community, and we've done it based on perhaps our own pain and experience that's distinct from actually actual, the actual history and use of Darwin. Stan, that's an excellent place to stop. I think we're going to stop right there. Thank Great. you for spending time with us on the podcast today. And- As always, appreciate you visiting and the work you do. Well, thank you very much. It's been a delight to be here with you and great conversation to have together. Thank you for listening to Resonance. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Southern Nazarene University or the Church of the Nazarene. Resonance is sponsored by a grant from Bridging the Two Cultures of Science and the Humanities II, a project run by Scholarship and Christianity in Oxford the UK subsidiary of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and with funding by the Templeton Religion Trust and the Blankmeyer Foundation. We hope that this week's episode has resonated with you and created space for more conversation between science, faith, and life.